Aloha, mahalo for joining us on The Conversation. I'm Bill Dorman, and today for Catherine Cruz. More developments coming today from Maui and Maui County's new Office of Recovery. Also an update on federal funding and a closer look at what the Small Business Administration is doing on the ground. The challenges of wildfire regulation in Hawaii, why enforcement can be complicated, and what might be done to improve the situation. And with hip-hop celebrating its 50th anniversary this year by some measures, we talk with a founding member of Hawaii's pioneering rap group, Sudden Rush. We'll hear how the music art form gave them a platform to shine a light on local culture and issues. It's Tuesday, October 3rd. This is The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Bill Dorman, in for Catherine Cruz. Housing will be a focus for a gathering on Maui today. Mayor Richard Bisson will be announcing a financial support program for homes that are hosting displaced residents. It's part of Maui County's new Office of Recovery. We'll bring you an update on developments later today on All Things Considered. And despite changes you just heard about today with the Speaker of the House, we also know that the immediate threat to the flow of some federal funding has ended. That's related to the congressional fight over the short-term spending bill. That agreement includes $16 billion in new funding for the Federal Emergency Management Agency. Senator Brian Schatz released a statement saying this means Maui will have the federal relief funding it needs for, quote, the foreseeable future. On the ground on Maui, FEMA has increased its presence on the west side of the island. So has the U.S. Small Business Administration. The SBA has made disaster loans available to businesses and nonprofits, as well as to homeowners and renters impacted by the fires. Cynthia Cowell is a Big Island native and the SBA public information officer. The conversations Russell Subiona sat down with Cowell in our studio this morning to get an update. Well, it has been a busy two months. SBA is currently located on Maui. We have several locations on Maui. We also have a location here in Honolulu, one on the Big Island, and one in Kapa'a on Kauai. These are locations for businesses on each island that may have been affected by the disasters. However, homeowners and renters who suffered damage and evacuated to the outer islands are also eligible. They can come in and we'll help them with their application. Even if it says Business Recovery Center, it's for everybody. Do you have maybe some ballpark figures as to how many people have been able to register since the recovery efforts have have started? Is the word getting out to everybody that these loans are available, this assistance is available? Well, the word is getting out. However, a lot of people are still unaware that homeowners and renters are also eligible for small business administration assistance. We can lend a homeowner up to $500,000 to repair or replace their damaged dwelling. And for homeowners and renters, we can lend up to $100,000 to replace their personal property. And that is for homeowners and renters. But it's not in addition to whatever other recovery funds you have. It's to help you with uncompensated losses. Mm -hmm. 
For example, a lot of people are waiting for these grants to come in. I've heard talks since I got here mm-hmm. August 11th that there are going to be grants for businesses and homeowners and renters. And we don't know how long it's going to take for those grants to make an appearance or to be paid out. So I recommend that everybody get their SBA application in as soon as possible. Make it timely. We do want the applications in as quickly as possible. And if you don't want the loan, if you want to hold off on the loan, that's okay. You don't accrue any interest or make any payments for a year after you've taken your first disbursement. So while things are still up in the air, get your financing straightened out. Know that you have it available, and then you can move on when things pick up. Sometimes it's a good idea to have it and not need it than to need it and not have it, right? So it sounds like it's a good idea to register, even if you don't take the loan. It sounds like registering and making sure that you're eligible for the assistance is a pretty important thing to do. It is. And plus, if you're a homeowner or renter, if you don't qualify for SBA funds, we can refer you back to FEMA. You just need to provide your FEMA registration number when you make your application. And we'll communicate with FEMA directly and let them know that you're eligible and they can take it from there. How has it been interacting with all the other agencies that are participating in in this overall recovery effort? We work very closely with FEMA, the state, and with county agencies. There's a cultural difference on Maui that we don't find, say, in Oklahoma. People are more cautious about getting help from the government on Maui than than they are in other places, and we understand that completely. We don't want to pry into your personal information. We don't want to take your land. We do use your land as collateral, but it would be that way with any other loan that you are going to get. And if you already have a mortgage on your property, we can go in behind the existing mortgage and we may be able to refinance that existing mortgage at the low rate. The low rate right now is 2.5% for homeowners and renters and you're not going to find money in a bank for much less than that. And for businesses it's 4% and for private nonprofit organizations including churches it's 2.375%. So it's, it's worth looking into. And you mentioned that the land is going to be used as collateral, just like any other loan that you would take out, but that the SBA is not here to take your land. No. I think there's a lot of that kind of misinformation out there that floats around on social media that causes panic within people. Are there any other kind of misconceptions that maybe the SBA would like to clarify? Yes, there is a lot. A lot of people are worried that we want to dictate how they rebuild their homes and businesses, and that's not true. We want it to be in accordance with the standards that are set up by the county and state. We don't dictate that. You have to get your proper permits, but that's the the case with yeah. anybody. So, you know, we, we just want you to be able to rebuild your your homes and your lives as quickly as possible. And we're not going to get involved with local politics as far as how, you know, you have to build a three-story house or you have to sell it to somebody. We're not going to do that. The big scare that we had this past weekend about the potential government shutdown, was that ever going to affect the SBA's ability to help people on Maui? No, not at all. We are funded differently than most other agencies, and we are considered essential because disasters are horrible. 
and it's not something that you can plan for, but SBA does have the funds available to fund their loans and to pay the people who are helping you to be there. The disaster recovery centers that have been opened up, what are some of the agencies that are in the centers that are there to help the survivors? Oh boy, I haven't been to the recovery centers on Maui. I'm trying to keep out of the way. I'm, I'm based in Honolulu, but I haven't been there since, oh gosh, mid-August. But I do know that the state has offices set up there so you can replace your driver's license, for example, or the title to your car. There's the Red Cross, there's FEMA, of course, and SBA, and lots of other agencies. But it's important for you to go in, reach out for help. We're not going to know you need help unless you tell us. And I know there's a reticence in the community to ask for help because we're strong people. I'm from Hawaii. We, we want to take care of our families and ourselves and our, and our communities without a lot of influence from anybody else. But right now is the time. This is not a normal situation. It's the time to ask for help. And there is help out there yeah. available. In your time that you've spent on Maui, I know you're based here on on Oahu, but I know you've also spent a little bit of time on Maui. What's the sense that you get there? Are things moving forward? Are spirits lightening? Or is it still kind of heavy there? It it will be heavy for a long time. However, when you listen to the news, it makes it a lot more dire than it actually is. They're saying that a lot of people aren't getting help, but more people are getting help. We've already approved close to $135 million, most of that for homeowners and renters. And that's, that's money that's available to people to start rebuilding their lives. I know people can't do it right away, and that in and of itself is stressful, especially when you have kids. You know, they got to go to school, and you don't know where your school is, so... That, that's very, very hard, and I know tempers are going to run high for a while, but the help is out there, and we're helping as much as we possibly can, but it's important to ask for that help. Now, if you evacuated to Honolulu or to Kauai or to the Big Island and you're a homeowner or renter, you can come into our business recovery centers on those islands. And if you go to sba.gov disaster, it will tell you where the locations are. We also have several business recovery centers, a portable business recovery center in Lahaina, a business recovery center in Kihei, and then right upstairs from our Kihei business recovery center, we have a business recovery and assessment center that's set up with Operation Hope. So there are other agencies in that business recovery and assessment center that can talk to businesses about how to reopen, if you should reopen. We're not going to tell anyone they shouldn't reopen, but it's it's important for you to know what's available and what's not available. Right now, there are no grants available for businesses, but they're working on it. So like I said earlier, apply for your SBA loan. You don't have to take it if you don't want it, but if it's approved, you have it available if you need it. Is there anything else that you think is important for homeowners or or business owners or charities or churches to know or do at this moment in time? 
My suggestion is everybody should register with FEMA. Even businesses should register with FEMA. And then most homeowners and renters will be referred to SBA for potential loan. Fill out that application, submit it, and we have people in the disaster recovery centers and the business recovery centers that can help you fill it out. I know people lost their computers. We've got computers set up to do those applications. For a homeowner or renter, if you are approved for a loan, you could just say, hold off, I don't, I don't want it right now, or you can cancel it altogether and we can pick it back up in a few months if you need to. If you're declined, we will send you a letter and explain exactly why you were declined. And there's no shame in that. We can refer you back to FEMA if you're a homeowner or renter, and they have further grant assistance. But you won't be eligible for a lot of grants if you don't apply for SBA first. Cynthia Cowell, thanks so much for coming into the station this morning. Really appreciate your time. Thank you, Russell. That was the SBA's Cynthia Cowell talking to HPR's Russell Subiono about the status of recovery efforts on Maui. The SBA has several business recovery centers set up on Maui. It also has one on the Big Island, one on Kauai, and here on Oahu at 521 Alamoana Boulevard. We'll have a link to more information on the conversation page of our website, hawaiipublicradio.org, later today. Support for HPR comes from Blue Note Hawaii, located in the outrigger Waikiki, presenting contemporary a cappella group Rockapella, performing two sets nightly this Thursday and Friday. Tickets at bluenotehawaii.com. The Supreme Court is hearing a case this week that could do away with so-called testers. They're self-appointed people who investigate whether businesses are compliant with the Americans with Disabilities Act. If the Supreme Court narrows who can enforce the ADA, there will be no ADA enforcement. The case may also change the way the government enforces civil rights laws across the board. That's on the next On Point. Beginning this afternoon at 2, following the Daily. One of the many lingering questions about the Maui fires relates to fire codes, especially when it comes to wildfires. And it may not be a surprise to find the enforcement of those codes is complicated by issues of money and staffing. That's the focus of a piece today from Civil Beat's Thomas Heaton, and he joins us this morning to talk about it. Thanks for making the time today, Thomas. Thanks for having me. So the headline of your story actually says a lot. Lack of money and staff is hindering wildfire code enforcement in Hawaii. And you write that that's, that's been the case for a while. Yes, it certainly has, um, and the the kind of the symptom of the the lack of funding and staffing has been that essentially structural and urban uh, enforcement of codes, say in buildings, uh, restaurants, businesses, ensuring compliance in those situations has taken precedence over essentially the wildland urban interface. So the fire codes that we have here in Hawaii, there are five, one for the entire state which is then adapted by each county. They are extensive. They are all adapted from the National Fire Code. There's an entire chapter dedicated to the wildland urban interface, in fact, that being the 
kind of border zone between rural or the wild land and human development. But the reality is, is that these teams are small. So, you know, lack of funding means lack of staff for Honolulu County. That means there are about 15 inspectors. And then for the other counties, there's less than half a dozen. So that means that they have to prioritize, of course, as I mentioned before. And the wildland urban interface has really taken a back seat as these fire code inspectors conduct their work and inspection, but then also they are charged with investigating fires and educating the public, among other things. You know, so much changed uh, for not just Maui, but Hawaii generally on, on August 8th. And the that phrase, the wildland urban interface, really likely to get probably a closer examination after what has happened in Lahaina and the assumptions about where that is and the assumptions about about vulnerabilities. But again, your your point on the resources as currently constructed, is is there room for, uh, for something like that? I believe so. Um, I've been told that, you know, by each of the fire departments um, that I've spoken to that, you know, they're going back and they're scrutinizing the codes. Um, but really, it's all good and well to have these codes, but it's very difficult well, what's the point in having the codes if they're not enforced, right? So they're going back and they're looking at them, and I think that we might be able to anticipate that there might be some bigger asks from the fire departments, fire prevention bureaus, because staffing has become a real issue. And as you say, there is just so much more awareness of what's going on, and that wildland urban interface is really, I mean, it's almost becoming part of uh, typical conversation. It's like a part of everyone's vocabulary. Right. You, you know, your your piece also is, uh, includes a, an interesting reminder about situations a lot of people may not realize, and that is that uh, Hawaii is the only state now without a state fire marshal's office. And you point out that uh, changes some actions, that changes some actions that, that may be related to enforcement. Yes, um, so it's it's got a quite a big flow-on effect. So Hawaii doesn't have a state fire marshal; it has a state fire council. That fire council is made up of the chiefs of each county. So you know, it, the, their role essentially is to kind of take asks to lawmakers to help bolster fire prevention and um, fire suppression uh, resources. But then also they develop the state fire code which is then adopted by themselves, the counties. But state fire marshals offices in other states, they do a lot of work and they kind of take a lot of the fire prevention tasks on themselves. So what has happened with the dissolution of the, uh, or the dissolving of the state fire marshals office in the late 70s, is it's had this flow on effect of putting a lot of the responsibility on the counties. So that really kind of lumps a lot more pressure onto the counties to do a lot more work and that's of course kind of part of the reason that there's not enough funding is that uh, there's not a state fire marshal's office to kind of lead the charge on prevention. Resources and funding and fire certainly something that we're going to be hearing about uh, more in coming months. Thomas Heaton with today's reality check. Thomas thanks for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. You can read Thomas's story online at civilbeat.org. 
Support for HPR comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art. Now on view is Transformation, Modern Japanese Art, a look at a time when dramatic changes in society were reflected in the arts. HonoluluMuseum.org On the next Fresh Air, Kat Bohannon, author of the new book Eve, How the Female Body Drove 200 Million Years of Human Evolution. It traces the evolution of women's bodies, taking us through the Jurassic era to the modern day, exploring everything from why we menstruate, are more likely to get Alzheimer's disease, and why we live longer. Join us. Fresh air beginning this afternoon at 3, following On Point. Support for HPR comes from the Honolulu Board of Water Supply, Ohana, working to protect watersheds and aquifers since 1929, for fresh water now and for future generations. Learn more at protectoahuwater.org. Festivities for the 43rd Annual Hawaii International Film Festival, Oahu, kick off this month. HIF organizers call it the largest film festival of the Pacific. It will screen comedies, documentaries, dramas, even zombie flicks. But one feature that's gaining critical buzz is A Great Divide by filmmaker Gene Shim. It's the story of a Korean-American family that settles in Wyoming. Here's a clip of the trailer. What do you think? This is not China, sir. This is America. The conversation Stephanie Hahn talked with Jean Shim about her debut feature. Not only when the pandemic started, but when I saw the rise of Asian hate, I was sitting in Wyoming looking out at the mountains and I had this epiphany or this dialogue within myself. They said, I can't believe this is happening now at the age that I am. I couldn't believe that I was seeing elderly Asian grandfathers and grandmas being thrown to the ground and that wasn't necessarily in rural america that was in the cities but it was just this rise of asian hate and going in to the town and during the pandemic when i felt the eyes on me as if i brought covid into this land and i was wearing a mask when most were not everything was heightened and i thought at that time i need to do something I'm, as most Asians would say, and Korean Americans, anything that happens, we just kind of stick our head down, work hard, ignore it, or just say, it'll pass. And I think that's what I always used to do in high school when I was growing up. I just said, I'm going to survive through this. I'm going to get through it. Just be quiet. And the less of a voice you have, you just thought you can get through it. And 
now as I'm much older, I have my own kids, I said, no, enough is enough. I have to do something. I don't know what that is, but I have to do something. If that means, do I get involved in an organization or do I go get political? I don't know what that is, but I took a moment and I said, the best way I can address this issue that was so deep within my heart and I was so concerned about where we were and where the Asian hate was going, I said, it's through storytelling. And I knew that I can direct a film, I could tell a story and tell a narrative. And from there, from the landscape of Wyoming that was kind of speaking to me also, that I should write a story and that's where it came from. And I really felt that the land and the land of Wyoming particularly was so good. And I felt that they were looking at us and kind of shaking their heads saying, what are you doing? You know, and that's what I felt even in the film when I was shooting in Wyoming and my producer was saying, oh, you can shoot in Montana. It's much easier. We get a tax credit, et cetera. I said, no, there is spirit of Wyoming that was calling on me that I felt that we had to shoot here. And I felt that actually the land is good. America is actually very good at the heart, but Sometimes when we experience the things that we experience and like the rise of Asian hate, I think we need to address it. And I always feel like when we hear stories, then we can get more compassionate and empathy for people. How have the people of Wyoming reacted to this film or have they had a chance to see it? I actually had many people, the crew and everybody that was here that was extremely supportive of the film. I think that the reception of being from it be, having this in rural America, I didn't really feel maybe it was from my take and perspective on it was that it wasn't just about being in rural America that was the prominent idea of racism. I felt that change is difficult. You know, a lot of people, they don't want change, any kind of change. And I, particularly me too, don't like change. At any time there is that kind of change, I fight against it. And I think most people can understand that. I think that's something that really resonates. And what I found really interesting is when our premiere was at Bent Film Festival and we're at the Heartland Film Festival and we are actually being very well received in middle America, which is kind of the dialogue of what I wanted to have. And especially when I was in Arkansas, you wouldn't believe the amount of people from Arkansas and the generosity came up and said, I was thinking about your film still the next day. And we had a dialogue about it. And I want my mother and my brother, when it comes to theater, to go watch it. I think because it presented kind of a story of where me and my parents, my grandparents, the immigrants came from and our experience here in America that they related to. Yeah, it provides a space for people to talk about stuff, right? So Absolutely. And, I, yeah. and thank you for asking that question only because it is a hard subject matter. You know, when I decide I'm going to do something about Asian hate and xenophobia, it's not an easy subject matter to tackle. I get it. But yet, I think, as you said, it's a dialogue. And I think when we see someone's perspective or a story, you're more empathetic and you you start having that dialogue. And that's when the divide isn't as great. We're actually more together than not together. I also felt your film raised this really important question about how do we exist in a system that actively works for us to feel unsafe? The the whole premise and one way of nation building with the United States is built 
on slavery and genocide. It's built on mm-hmm. the fundamental idea that a subscription to ideas of oppression are what will often get you ahead. And mm. so this presents often serious moral dilemmas. And I didn't know if you had any questions about this idea of where can people feel safe? How do we create this? Did you come to any new ideas about this as you were making the film? You know, I go back, I go to the big cities and I've lived there for many years. I have to be honest with you, I probably feel more unsafe in a bigger city than in rural, in a more smaller town in Wyoming, even though in Wyoming kids can get guns when they're 15 years old and everybody has a gun. But the gun, it's treated differently. However, the interesting point you bring up about about oppression, I think that's another thing that we talked about in the film that was interesting even when we talked about North Korea and South Korea. Here is a country that is not necessarily about race because we are one people, and yet there is an oppressive uh, history in our country. And also, not in the history of our country of Korea, China and Japan, everyone, you know, wanting our land and oppressing our land and understanding what that feels like to be under oppression. And our parents lived through that, and my grandparents lived through that uh, with horrific oppression and fear and kind of trying to obliterate our country and our our nation and our language, et cetera, in Korea. So with that, there's some kind of, I don't know, in Korean blood, there's this kind of strength that we have. I think it comes from the generations of being oppressed and as being in America and going through that, that's when we have this kind of quiet thunder. We, We can get through things and survive and yet at the same time have a voice now and I think for the future generation and what this film really talks about is that the future generation does have a choice and I believe our future is in their hands and if they can know the history of where we come from and the choices they can make I truly believe our country can be less fearful more loving and accepting and rather than going the other way which at the end monologue the Benjamin character states Was there anything unexpected, the creative act or some scene or some moment that, you know, changed you or made the project a little different? I would say there's one that comes to mind that was quite special. In the film, you'll see the moose. And moose in Wyoming are very difficult to find. If you ever come here, you go on a tour and they're maybe 200 yards away and you have to get binoculars and you look through them, but they're very magical. They're large and beautiful animals. Uh, when I was designing the hoodie for our cast and crew, I drew a moose in the back and my writer said, why are you drawing a moose? There's no moose in our film because we never <laughs> wrote a moose because we knew there's no way to capture a moose. Maybe we could get an elk, we could get a bison. I knew how I can do that and make that happen for the film, but not a moose. So many miracles on this film that nature and animals came through for us. We didn't have a wrangler. We didn't do these things. We didn't have the budget for those things. And also, they roam around our land freely. So one day, a moose walks through the house in the backyard, and I look at my cinematographer and say, like, a moose! And I have never seen a moose come through that area. We didn't have the physical camera yet from Panavision. So I told the whole crew, guys, if you ever see a moose anywhere, text me 
because we'll shut everything down, we'll capture a moose, and we'll rewrite the scene to capture this moose. So another crew member saw a moose in the neighborhood. We ran, got the moose, captured it on camera, and my, my DB said, oh my goodness, I got you a moose. And I said, no, 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 this moose isn't going to do because we need the moose attached to the house because <laughs> the family lives in the house. Right. we got to get it at the house. Okay, he woke up early one morning, saw the moose in the backyard of the house, called me, he's in a bathroom, runs over, gets the camera, and this is the miracle. The moose was taking a nap in the backyard of the house. And he wouldn't get up. So then he only had 30 seconds left of the camera roll. So 15 seconds left. I didn't know this. And suddenly the moose stands up. We don't even have the moose walking off screen because we ran out of film. I knew when that happened. I said, that's the end of our film. It was telling me spiritually that this is the end of your film, Gene. And it was just a true gift. I looked at my TV and said, listen... Wyoming and nature is on our side. It will answer for us. And I could write a book about how it did and made the film in a kind of a magical way, dictated what we needed to capture. Yeah, it was great. The gods were there for you. You are a woman occupying a position that we usually see men in, producing, directing, writing. So tell me a little bit about this journey Oh, thank you. I mean, I think 25 years ago, I started this journey of being a woman director. I remember going to one of the early on Pusan Film Festivals, and everybody looked at me like, no women ever directs. It's just, they thought I was a foreign animal. I knew very early on, this is what I was, this is a position I, I loved. And and I remember the short film I did, I think I hired almost every person of woman DP, editor, everyone was a woman, and I thought that was really important. This is like 25 years ago, a long time ago. So, you know, and now I took a long break, and part of it is life, marriage, divorce, children, and I think those things, even as a woman, it's different than, I would say, a man. In general, I would be honest, I was a single mom, and when you have that kind of responsibility, your career has to be kind of put to the side. And... That's a choice I knew I had to make if I wanted to be the mom that I needed to be for my children. So when it was time when they were going off to college, I said, this is my time now. And I don't see it as a huge loss because I saw the industry go through a lot of changes that were good. I thought positive changes back 25 years ago, nobody wanted to see an Asian film. I mean, they thought I was crazy in America to do some kind (laughs) of Korean-Asian film. I mean, I casted... Justin, I, I mean, I casted these people who now I look back and I think it's amazing where cinema has gone. And I've seen the Korean filmmakers and actors. It blows my mind. I'm so thrilled. So coming back now and being a woman and being an Asian woman and having a voice, I think we do have a unique way of telling things, I believe. And as a woman, I approach things greatly with empathy and with compassion. I'm not saying men do not, but I do think women just by having a womb and bearing children and and being nurturers, I think innately we have a certain sensibility that's just innate in us as women. And I think that exudes in storytelling. And so when I was making certain choices and, and some people really fought me on those choices that I felt that in this choice, particularly of Asian hate, we could go tell it in many different ways, you know, anger, hatred, revenge, a lot of different tonality that you can choose. And I chose, empathy. I thought that was 
very important for the story. And me, as a woman director, that's just who I am. Filmmaker Jean Shim on her movie A Great Divide, talking to the conversation Stephanie Hahn. Shim's film is screening at the 43rd Annual Hawaii International Film Festival. HIF runs from October 12th through the 22nd on Oahu and October 27th to November 5th on neighbor islands. In addition to the movie screenings, there are opportunities to meet filmmakers and learn about the film industry. We'll have a link to more information on the conversation page of our website later today. Aloha, I'm John Zach. Each Tuesday, beginning October 10th during Morning Edition, All Things Considered and The Conversation, Hawaii residents share personal stories from their military service as part of HPR's collaboration with the StoryCorps Military Voices Initiative. The project, called Hawaii's Military Voices, is supported by Hawaii Pacific University. These veterans have a lot to say. Here's our chance to listen. When Yellow Freight went out of business a couple of months ago, tens of thousands of people lost their jobs. A lot of them are still looking for work. I was told by two companies, straight up, by two companies. They said if you had not worked for Yellow, I would hire you tomorrow. I'm Kai Rizdal. Why some companies just won't hire Yellow drivers. That's next time on Marketplace. Beginning this evening at 6, following All Things Considered. By some measures, hip-hop is celebrating its 50th anniversary this year. The musical art form started in New York and has seen its influence grow around the world. Here in Hawaii, Hilo's Sudden Rush is widely recognized as the first group to record Namele Poleoleo, or the combination of hip-hop with native Hawaiian rapping. Sudden Rush was formed in 1993 by Caleb Richards and Shane Vincent, later added fluent Hawaiian speaker Keala Kava'auhau and producer Rob Onakea. Over that time, and uh, from 1994 to 2018, they released four albums. Over that time, their focus evolved from emulating the popular gangster rap of the 1990s to perpetuating the importance of Hawaiian culture and commenting on local political issues. The conversations Russell Subiona got the chance to reminisce with founding member Shane Vincent. What's your first memory of hip hop making an impression on you? If I'm not mistaken, that would be the early 80s, I believe, 81 or 82, I think, summer fun. I was just a, a kid when we were first hearing, you know, the likes of Run DMC, the Fat Boys, 
probably left the biggest impression, I think, for me. I really liked listening to the Fat Boys. They were fun to watch. And I think I started writing where I would listen to their rap and then kind of change the words to match, you know, the time and space that we live in here, yeah? So kind of taking the flow that I was hearing and just putting words to it that my friends could laugh at or get into, yeah? So yeah, I started writing. That's probably intermediate, maybe before that. But I know by high school, I was able to freestyle. Yeah, I was pretty good at freestyle. I think by the time I hit my freshman year in high school, we'd do that during the recess, you know, some ciphers. we you know, get a circle together and somebody beatbox and just flip, yeah, to see how long you could keep your freestyle going. Do you remember anything that you've written from back in those days? Can you still recite any of it? Not really. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, nothing's coming to mind right now. I remember experimenting with writing rap back in the day as well. My ability to rhyme was very simplistic, so I think I would probably be embarrassed to unearth anything from that point in time. I think rap in general was, was kind of simple back then, yes? Yeah? Right. I think the rhyming schemes and, and the word usage has definitely become much more complex as time yeah, has gone on. From what I can tell on the internet, Sudden Rush formed in 1993 and released its first album in 1994, Nation on the Rise. How did you and Caleb and Kiala and Rob, how did you guys all connect to form Sudden Rush? Okay, so Sudden Rush was me and my Wahana from Paneva, Paneva Hawaiian Homes here in Hilo. Friends and family was just a bunch of us boys from the hood who would write verses. And, and, you know, we put together enough songs to be able to perform at underground parties. And that's actually where I met Caleb. I met Caleb at a party in Panaeva. And he came up to me while I was sitting down rolling an herb. <laughs> and he goes, oh, yeah, I rap too, you know. Oh, yeah? I said, try bus. So he, he did a verse and it was, it was a dope verse. And that was the beginning of our relationship. Caleb actually worked at Temple Music in the Principal Hill Plaza, so he had access to all of the new singles. Back then, the new singles would come out with A-side and B-side. Mm -hmm. So you would have you know, the song and then the instrumentals for a lot of the music that was coming out at the time. So he would bring to the house, he'd bring a, a lot of the instrumentals that, you know, whatever new instrumentals were hitting the shelves, he would bring to the house and we would try and write songs to those instrumentals and we did a couple songs and then we entered the talent show at the Hilo County Fair and we won that and Captain Craig who was a radio disc jockey at the time was one of the judges for the talent show and he ended up putting us on a card he had at the Hilo Hawaiian a few weeks later with Brother Nolan and Hoi Kane so that was our first gig we opened up for them, and then one night we were playing at a party, and a friend of ours, Ethan Malumota, very good friend of mine, came up to us and asked us if we wanted to do an album, and then suggested that we get together with Keala to create some music. So that's that's what we did. I think 
I showed up at Tiala's house one day with, with a sleeping bag, and two weeks later we had a bunch of songs done, and we were going on a on a little island tour. I've heard a similar story from videos that I've watched on the internet from Kiala that you and Caleb were sudden rush first, and and that he was brought into the fold a, a little bit later on. At what point did you guys decide to incorporate Olala Hawaii into your verses? That was Kiala, so I cannot speak the language. I've been trying to learn, but I'm, I'm fragmented. Yeah, Kiala was a student at the time, UH Hilo, in Hawaiian language. And Kiala actually, I think, played the most significant role in regards to us staying rooted in where we live, yeah, our culture, our story as a people. So Caleb and I, we were we were different. I think we were, because we're from the gangster rap era, you know, and we were young and koloi, you know. We'd get into trouble. So the way that we created was different from what Keala was bringing to the table. If you listen to some of our early, early stuff, you know, Rec Shop, Drop the Bomb, it's not really the island-friendly content that we evolved into creating yeah but for sure the olelo was for sure kiala keeping us grounded keeping us rooted in the time and space we live yeah here in hawaii was definitely kiala like i said we were more young wannabe gangsters <laughs> <laughs> when sudden rush evolved into the group that was known for rapping about hawaii and hawaii issues and doing it in olelo hawaii you guys were innovators, that you were the first. Uh, yeah. You guys were the first Hawaii rappers. What was the public's reception to you guys incorporating Olelo Hawaii and Hawaii themes into your music? I think there was there was a lot of a good, I think, feedback that came out of it. I think there was also, my uncle actually, Kaulana Napua. I remember my uncle was telling me, oh, I heard you guys knew, knew one, yeah, Kalana Napua. Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, how come you guys f*** that song up? <laughs> <laughs> oh, so, yeah, there were for sure people who felt that we were crossing a line. But I think we understood that it was the means to get another generation to hear music, to hear a message that they otherwise weren't going to receive from the music and, and the way that it was made before us, yeah? I know that much of hip-hop's legacy in general is giving a voice to the marginalized, to the overlooked, to the oppressed. And we heard that most notably, I think, with groups like N.W.A. and Public Enemy. Did you guys feel like your music was important to share these things about Hawaii and about our lives here that maybe nobody really knew about? For sure. So, you know, despite our interest in, you know, gangster rap, which was the predominant form of rap music at the time, there was also an understanding in hip-hop at the time that you keep it real. Keep it real was a huge part of hip-hop. I think today it's kind of become a fake-it-till-you-make-it industry. Back then, you know, like there was a lot of talk about studio gangsters, you know, and, and keeping it real. So I think that we definitely tried to do that. You mentioned NWA and Public Enemy. Public Enemy is for sure one of the biggest influences as far as hip hop at the time on the way that we created, yeah. Chuck D and the political message that they had in a lot of their music. 
going back to the, the keeping it real thing, I think that means we're creating content that people here could identify, whether it was political or just good time, yeah, party kind of stuff, whatever it was. I think it was important for us to create music that people here could identify with. We had friends who met a bunch of friends, different groups who were doing hip hop at the time. And I think, yeah, everybody doing it back then was kind of creating the way we were hearing music from the States, yeah. We got some traction, but it wasn't easy. Yeah, it wasn't always accepted, but we were having fun with it for sure. We, we enjoyed what we were doing. I think maybe in some ways you guys were ahead of your time because I listen back to your music in today's context and a lot of the issues and a lot of the messages that you had early on are things that kind of <laughs> lit a little fire that, that kind of ended up in these protests at TMT and others since then. What are your thoughts on the legacy of your music? For sure. So in the universities for quite some time now, they've used our music as part of the program. It's part of the curriculum. I'd like to think that we help to instill a sense of pride in our home, in our culture, in our language. Back then, it was almost frowned upon that we were creating that way. Some people, I mean, I'd even use the term sell out. Some people felt like we were creating to get support yeah, from that niche market. But then if you look at music today, I think it's become kind of the in thing to do, yeah, is to create music that brings awareness, which really, if you think about hip hop, you mentioned that earlier, yeah, the marginalized, the oppressed, yeah, it was the voice of a people. It was the means to bring change through awareness. And I think that's what we're seeing a lot of today, not just with hip hop, but with music in general here in the islands. You know, there's reggae with Olelo now. You know, back then was Aipohaku. There's more groups doing music like that now. And I think that the message, especially after TMT, so post 2019, for sure, hearing an influx of music addressing the plight of our people. Shane, thanks so much for your time, and I really enjoyed talking story with you about hip hop in Hawaii. Thank you. I really appreciate your time. Right on, Russell. Sudden Rush is Shane Vincent talking with HBR's Russell Subiono about hip hop's influence in Hawaii stretching over the decades. Today, only Vincent and Caleb Richards remain with the group. Kaala Kava'aha Jr. unexpectedly passed away in 2018. Vincent says the group was able to record an album with Kava'aha before his passing and hopes to release it later this year. That's the program for today. Tomorrow, Parenting After a Tragedy. We talked to a local health care provider helping parents help their children process the Maui wildfire disaster. Are you a displaced Maui resident with a story about getting help during the disaster recovery process? Or are you having trouble getting help? Call our talkback line, 808-792-8217. You can also email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. If you missed a program, you can find the podcast version of the conversation on Spotify, Apple, or anywhere you tune in for podcasts. 
I'm Bill Dorman in for Catherine Cruz. We'll be back tomorrow with more of the conversation.